Don't ask. All right, let's pray. Father, we're thankful for the, the blood of Jesus that washes away our sin, that it pleads for us, it pleads our pardon, and even though it was painful, it, it cost Christ His life, uh, it, it brought about our life and took upon He took upon Himself the death and the condemnation that we deserved. And so we're grateful for the substitutionary atonement that works on our behalf and that, that speaks for us so that when we stand before You one day, uh, we will be accepted, not on the basis of anything that we have done, of any works of righteousness, but according to Your mercy that comes through the cross. So we praise You for that and want to honor You tonight because of our relationship uh, through Jesus Christ. And we pray that You would help us to be complicit with the work that Your Spirit is doing in us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This evening will be in Psalm number 60. Psalm number 60. For keeping track of where we're at, um, then you knew that we were in Psalm 60, and so perhaps you read this before, before you came. Any idea on what kind of psalm this is? Remember the types of psalms that we have? We have praise, thanksgiving, lament, Trust, kingship, just gave you multiple choice there. Not Thanksgiving. What was it? Lament. Okay, good. It's a lament psalm, and if you look at the title underneath Psalm 60 in your Bible, you might actually have the word lament like mine does. In this case, it's a community lament uh, where Israel as a nation is troubled by God's abandonment of them, and so they cry out to God because of this, and... They remember His Word and then rely on Him through prayer. The author, as we see in the superscription, there is, is who? David. All right. And then the occasion for the psalm, not all of them have this much information. This is probably the most information you're going to get about a psalm. And it says, When he struggled with Aram Naharehim and with Aram Zobah, and Joab returned and smote 12,000 of Edah in the Valley of Salt. Um, so apparently this took place uh, at the time of 2 Samuel 8 when David was fighting the Arameans in the north. So remember, David went on all these campaigns to fight and to, to, to earn back the land that belonged to Israel. He was fighting on behalf of God. And so when he went to the north to fight the Arameans, while he was up there with his men, then the Edomites, who were descendants of whom? Esau. Okay, so Esau's descendants, the Edomites, who were always a thorn in Israel's side, they saw it as an opportunity to go in and attack the southern part of Israel, which is Judah. And um, as a result, they weakened uh, Israel. And when David found out about it, he was completely distraught. And as he reflected back on this situation, when, he, when they were being attacked, when he was finding out that they were being attacked, um, he wrote this psalm on behalf of the people. Now, the end of the story is that David ultimately won. If you go back to 2 Samuel 8, which we're not going to do tonight, 
Uh, you're going to see it just very quickly. It doesn't really talk about all the distress that David had or the consternation that he had in his mind because God had abandoned them. All it says is that he, he went and destroyed several thousand of the Edomites down in the southern region of Israel. All right, so that's the occasion. And then the purpose of the psalm is also found in the superscription. Right after it says a miktam of David, it says, notice, here's the purpose, to teach. To teach. So David not only wants the people to benefit from it, the people who are hearing this song, song for the first time and learning it, but he also wants future generations to know how they can respond to God when it feels like God is far away. When, when it feels like God has abandoned them as a nation. When, when we feel like things are being crushed in all around us. When we have a national crisis on our hands. Israel would know how to respond, how to pray in those times. And that's what David wants this psalm to be. And, and we, re- we, we really could say that about all the psalms. That they're designed to teach us, to help us, to see how we can talk to God in, in, in various kinds of situations, in times of joy and times of sorrow. Psalm number 60. I'm going to read it for us. You follow along in your Bible. This is the Word of God. O God, You have rejected us. You have broken us. You have been angry. O restore us. You have made the land quake. You have split it open. Heal its breaches, for it totters. You have made your people experience hardship. You've given us wine to drink that makes us stagger. You've given a banner to those who fear you, that it may be displayed because of the truth, that your beloved may be delivered. Save with your right hand and answer us. God has spoken in His holiness. I will exalt. I will portion out Shechem and measure out the valley of Succoth. Gilead is mine and Manasseh is mine. Ephraim also is the helmet of my head. Judah is my scepter. Moab is my washbowl. Over Edom I shall throw my shoe. Shout loud, O Philistia, because of me. Who will bring me into the besieged city? Who will lead me to Edom? Have not you yourself, O God, rejected us? And will will you not go forth with our armies, O God? O give us help against the adversary. For deliverance by man is in vain. Through God we shall do valiantly, and it is He who will tread down our adversaries. The key feature of a lament, remember you're going to find a lot of them, almost half of the psalms are lament psalms. The key feature is that it starts out with a complaint, some kind of trouble that takes place, and and then it turns into a prayer of trust. It moves from sorrow to trust. And this is a completely appropriate way for us to pray. We're going to find ourselves in trouble uh, just like Israel often did. And so we need to know how to pray during those times. And it is completely appropriate for us to begin with a time of complaint to God. Not in a whining or blaming type of way, but, but, but to offer to God the trouble that we're experiencing. And we'll see how we do that here in this first section. And what we see from the psalm is that when God is far away, believers must humbly go to Him in prayer. When God is far away, believers must humbly go to Him in prayer. So, how do we respond? There are three ways that we respond when God seems far away. 
Alright, number one. When God is far away, we must take our concerns to Him. We must take our concerns to God in prayer, verses 1 through 5. When God is far away, we must take our concerns to God in prayer. This is the complaint part. This is the part where we just take our situation and, and pour it out to God. Just explain the situation to God. He, he knows it, but we explain it anyway. Here in verses 1 through 3, we see the staggering reality of God's rejection. I mean, what has God done to the people? Look at verse 1. Tell me, what, what are the three verbal phrases that describe what God has done? Now, there are four verbal phrases, but what are the three that describe what God has done? Help me. You have rejected us. That's the first one. Okay, you have been angry. Okay, verse 1. Is that, is that what yours says? The land shake? Okay. But uh, you have broken us. Okay, so there in the first three lines of verse 1. You have rejected us. You have broken us. You have been angry. And then how is that rejection expressed? Look at verse 2. This is what Eric was pointing out here. That you made the land quake which is a metaphor, probably not for an earthquake. He caused an earthquake and we had all sorts of damage. No, he's probably just saying, you, you, you made us lose in battle. You caused us to lose. You, you, there's, there's all sorts of calamity. Verse 3, you have made your people experience hardship. So, God, you've rejected us. You've broken us. You, you've been angry with us. And as a result, we are just... We're, we're destroyed. We have all this hardship on us. And you know, we could understand... God's rejection and opposition if we were doing these kinds of things to His enemies, right? But notice the people that we're talking about. Look at verse 3. You have made your people. Look at verse 4. You have given a banner to those who fear you. Verse 5. That your beloved may be delivered. So, who is He talking about? He's not talking about His enemies. God is rejecting and breaking and being angry at His own people, His beloved. And so notice how they respond at the end of verse 3. The news is just more than they can bear. It says, You have given us wine to drink that makes us stagger. When they experience this real rejection of God, the news of His abandonment was like the feeling of a drunk man unable to calibrate himself and rightly to be able to reflect on his surroundings. This is... This is Israel. They're kind of staggering from the news that God has abandoned them. We are your people, God. And you've abandoned us. So David, on behalf of God's people, calls out for help. Notice what he says there at the end of verse 1. So we had those three descriptions of how God acted in verse 1, but then the very last one is actually a, a command or, or a call to action saying, God, oh, restore us. So the implication is that God is angry and the fact that they need to be restored suggests that He's angry for, because of something that they did. Now, the text doesn't make it clear if they had done some kind of a national sin and God's responding to that and, and bringing a pressure, oppression of some kind upon them so that they will turn back to Him. Uh, it could be that God's just taking them through a trial like He often does to His children to discipline them, to, um, to, to bring them on the path towards greater righteousness. But whatever the case, they need to be restored. They need God back in a place where He's close to them. And so in verses 4 and 5, we see our deep longing for God's nearness. Our deep longing for God's nearness. 
Verse 4 says, You would have given a banner, or you have given a banner to those who fear you. What was a banner used for in war? See who, which side you're on? Just the good guys? You guys have the bad guys banner. What was the banner used for? The sign. It was, it was like a railing cry, right? They would raise up banners at certain points in the in the battle, and then the, the, the troops would know what to do because they're going to be spread out. There's going to be a lot of noise. And so along with some kind of a trumpet sound, perhaps they would know how to, how to rally. In Exodus 17:15, the Lord was their banner. But here the banner's not talking about God. Notice the next line, what it's talking about. Verse 4, that it may be displayed because of the truth. This banner needs to be raised up for the sake of the truth. In other words, the staggering reality about God's real rejection of His people should bring them back to a place where they raise up this banner of truth. And what is that truth? Something that we already kind of touched on, which is that they belong to God. They are God's covenant people. Here we even see it in verse 4. Those who fear you. Verse 5, your beloved. See, what they needed to reflect on was the fact that God is their God and they are His people. Raise up that banner cry. As it, as it looks like you're losing, here's the rallying cry to get the victory. Get your eyes fixed back where they belong. God has not abandoned you fully and finally. He is on your side. And He will deliver, verse 5, that your beloved may be delivered. God will deliver them because they are His people. There's nothing inherently good in Israel that drew them to God as if God looked at them and said, wow, they're, they're really shiny. In a, in a pile full of people who are dull and ugly and, and unappealing, there is that one shiny coin, Israel. And I want that coin. That's not how God chose Israel, was it? Listen to Deuteronomy 7, 7 and 8. The Lord did not set His love on you, nor choose you because you were more in number than any of the peoples, for you were fewest of all. But rather, the Lord loved you. The reason He, he, he chose you is because He loved you and kept the oath which He swore to your forefathers. In other words, God chose you on the basis of His own mercy. And so what Israel needed to remember is that the reason that they're going to win is not because there was something special in them, but because God was on their side. God had chosen them. And at the end of verse 5, it says, Save with your right hand and answer us. Because God would deliver those whom He loved, because God is faithful to His promise, then they could confidently pray to Him as they will do here in the next several verses. So when God is far away, we must take our concerns to God in prayer. So what kind of trouble are you in right now? What kind of feeling of abandonment do you have with regard to God right now? Like everything that's going on in my life, it seems like God is far away. First thing that we need to do is, is take those concerns to God in prayer, right? Um, Philippians 4, 6 and 7. Do not be anxious for anything. But, every, but with everything in prayer and supplication, let your requests be made known unto God so that the peace which passes all understanding will rule your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Right? We take all of our anxieties and we don't hold on to them or pass them on, you know, like we were talking about, um, I forget when we were talking about it, but, but how we tend to complain to other people. You know, we, 
Think about the, all the troubles that are going on at work or in politics or at home or whatever. And we're, we're good at complaining to all sorts of other people, but how often do we take those things to God? And that's what laments help us to do. Get our focus back where they belong. Back on God. So take your anxieties to God and just, just lay them out on the table. God, this is what's going on. You know it, but I'm just going to say it. Feels like you are far away. Number two. When God is far away, we must remember God's Word. Verses 6 through 8. When God is far away, we must remember God's Word. What Israel needed to remember was what God had promised to them, and He had promised to them the land. He promised that they would be restored to this land that, that was promised to their forefathers. And, and we have kind of a sampling of the, some of the cities in the land or some of the regions in the land in verses 6 and 7. And this is what God wants us to do. We need to remind ourselves of God's promises. Now, for God, He didn't promise us a specific plot of land, right? But what promises has He given to us? What promises are we not holding on to now that we don't have right in front of us because our, our eyes are too blurred by the trouble that we face? For Israel, David recounted a time for the benefit of himself and the congregation so that they could have a confident hope that God would come to their aid. Listen, what did God promise to us with regard to the land? And I think David also recounts these promises that we're going to see, I think, went back to Abraham and to Joshua and so on. He, he does it for the sake of God so that God would be reminded of the promises just like God reminds Himself with the rainbow. David says, God, remember what you told to us? And so he does that here in verses 6 and 7. He says, God has spoken in His holiness. So he's saying here, this, what, what is this reminder about? It's about what God has told us He will do. He will distribute the land, the land as He pleases. Verse 6, He will distribute the land as He pleases. God has spoken in His holiness. I will exalt. I will portion out Shechem and measure out the valley of Sukkoth. If you were to look in the back of your Bible... Uh, under the, a map with the 12 tribes of Israel, you would see that Shechem is on the western side of the Jordan and then Sukkoth is on the eastern side of the Jordan. Just two cities. They're kind of opposite each other. And, and they simply... Nothing really special happened there except that they just represent the nation as a whole. So if we wanted to represent our nation, we might say something like, you know, we're receiving a portion from Chicago to Phoenix or something like that. You know, just a representative of, of really the whole nation. That This is what he's saying. He's saying, I am going to distribute these cities as I please. And the reason that he will distribute the land, notice verse 7, is because he owns the land. He says, Gilead is mine. Manasseh is mine. Ephraim also is the helmet of my head. Judah is my scepter. So notice the, the uh, possessive pronouns there. Mine, mine, my, my. God says, they belong to me. These, these um, regions or cities uh, describe larger areas. Gilead was a city in, in Gad's territory. And then Manasseh and Ephraim, if you were to look in the back of your Bible, you'd see those are the two largest of the tribes. Those were two of Joseph's sons, and they were into pasturing, uh, uh, into farming, so, so they got a lot of the farmland, so they got a larger plot of land. And then Judah is obviously the city of the king. And so, between these four territories, Gad, which is where Gilead is, 
Manasseh, Ephraim, and Judah, you have probably over 75% of the land space of all of Israel. And God's saying, not that I don't, I don't own the rest of them. He's just saying, do you see these big plots of land? They all belong to me. And that's why I can distribute them as I please, verse 6. They, I own them all. And so I distribute them as I please. And so here, here's what's going on. God's not speaking to them instantaneously. Like they're praying, God, here's what's going on. You know, we're being abandoned by you and you're far from us. And God says, here, here's what I, I'm going to do. I'm going to distribute the land. That's not what's going on. This is, this is David and the congregation thinking back to what God had said before and using this as a means to bolster their trust, their confidence in God. Be able to say, this is what God said. God owns this land. And if Edom comes by and temporarily takes a portion of it, we can be confident in God because He owns it all. And He's going to take it and distribute, distribute it as He pleases. Now, God had distributed it during the conquest in Joshua. But the people in Judges and following failed to maintain it, right? They failed to drive all the Canaanites out. And as a result, they got taken back over. And that's why David's fighting back for this land. Well, not only must we remember what God's going to do for His own land, but notice verse 8. Because it moves to regions outside of what we think of as Israel. Kind of, we could call it enemy territory. And, and what we learn here in verse 8 is that God is not unable to subject His enemies or our enemies to Himself. God is not unable. There's a purposeful double negative. But the idea is He is able. So, in other words, He's not handcuffed and being able to subject His enemies to Himself. Not only does God own the promised land and is able to distribute it as He pleases, but, but He also can do the same for enemy territory. Look at verse 8. Moab is my wash bowl. In other words, you know, the, the servants would, would bring their wash bowl to wash them, their master's feet. And God says, I wipe my feet on Moab, right? And I blow my nose on Moab. They're, they're a waste. I can do whatever I want to them. And then Moab is east of the Dead Sea. Edom is southeast of the Dead Sea. And notice how he describes it there. Over Edom I shall throw my shoe. So, here he's, as the master, he's kind of just taking his shoe and throwing it to Edom. Clean it. In other words, he has control over them. Philistia, verse 8, the end of the verse, shout loud because of me. And it's unclear exactly what he's trying to convey here. But I think the idea is that God is triumphant over Philistia. There's several options that Alan Ross puts forth in his commentary. He says it could be that Philistia shouts to no avail. So you shout as much as you want, Philistia, but God's going to ultimately triumph. Or it could be, secondly, that, that Philistia is forced to shout an homage. Speak up. Give homage to your king. That's what they could be shouting about. Or, thirdly, it could be that God shouts in triumph over Philistia. And again, it's not clear what exactly is going on here at the end of verse 8. But, but what is clear is that no matter which one of those three you choose, the idea is that God triumphs over Philistia just like He does over Moab and Edom. 
So for Israel, they would do well to remember who their God is. They would do well to remember what He had promised and who He has power over. The problem is that this promised subjection of God's enemy is not something that happened in historical Israel. I mean, in Moab never fully, Moab, Edom, the Philistines never fully came under the rule of Israel. And so what I think this, this passage, this psalm is looking forward to is a time when God will do this. Something that, that David and the congregation of Israel needed to remember. God is going to be faithful to His promises. God's going to bring all things into subjection under His feet, ultimately through His Son. God promised to restore the land and He is not handcuffed to be able to subject His enemies to Himself. And, and so Israel would do well to remember God's Word. So we, in our times of, of abandonment, when it feels like God is far away, we need to first take those concerns, those anxieties to God, talk to, them, talk to Him about it, and then remember what He has promised. What is it that He has promised with regard to these troubles? Has He promised that I would be free from trouble for my whole life? That I would have a healthy and wealthy life? Or has He promised to be with me all the way through these troubles? Has He promised to be near me all the way to the end? What kind of promises do we have? So when God is far away, we must remember God's Word. And then, number three, when God is far, far away, we must rely on God in faith-filled prayer. Verses 9-12, through 12, we must rely on God in faith-filled prayer. Here, we have kind of the formal prayer. The first part is kind of the anxiety. God, we feel abandoned by You. You have... You, you have um, you have rejected us. You've broken us. You've been angry with us. And so there's some samplings or some, some, um, some hints at some, some asking at the beginning of the psalm. But really, the, the real formal asking happens here at the end. And so he begins with uh, really a confidence in what God will do in verses 9 and 10. That our great Deliverer will deliver us once again. Our great Deliverer will deliver us once again. David concludes the psalm with an expectation that God will deliver. Look at verse 9. Who will bring me into the besieged city? So Edom's come in. They've wiped us out. Who's going to be bring me in this city and, and make me triumphant? And David anticipates in the second part of verse 9 the answer. He says, who has led me to Edom? If you look in the margin of your Bible, there's an alternate reading. Okay? And, and again, when I, when I point you to the margin of the Bible, these are not um, necessarily the best readings. In fact, the best reading is usually in the text. But here's an alternate reading of something that could be. What, what the translators are trying to do is give you the best idea. And so that's what you're going to see in the main text. But the, but the margin helps you to see where they got their idea from. So this the margin often gives you the more literal translation or sometimes just an alternate translation, just another idea. And, and if you saw how they put together these translations, it is amazing. Uh, they, they've got a, a round table, effectively, of 12 to 15 scholars who, who know all of the, the background for all these words. 
and they, they basically just make a comment. Here's what I think, here's what I think, and then they make a vote. And so here's what ends up in the, in the Scriptures. So, so they're, they're doing as much research as they can on the original languages, and this is what's coming out. But, but here's uh, another translation which I think helps us in this case. Again, the margin doesn't always help us. Um, most often the, the, the text is best that you have there. But here, I think it does help us. It says, who has led us? So the question is in the first part of verse 9, and the answer actually comes in the form of a question in the second part of verse 9. So 9a, question, 9b, answer. So this is how it would go. Who will bring me into this besieged city? Answer, the one who has brought me, the one who has led me into Edom. In other words, who will bring me? Well, who has led me this far? That's the point. David anticipates that God is his great deliverer. God's the one who has brought him to a victorious place. So who's going to bring me to that place again? The first part of verse 9. It's God. My great deliverer has delivered and he will deliver. That's the idea. And then in verse 10. Have not you yourself, O God, rejected us? And will you not go forth with our armies? Again, you have a hint of his, his frustration or his anxiety. That, that God has rejected them. And, he, and yet he anticipates, notice the second part of verse 10, will you not go forth with our armies? Will you not just anticipates it's, the implied answer is yes, you will. He expects that God will answer, that God will come to their aid and so therefore he, David, and the people can depend on him. The great deliverer will deliver once again. And then verses 11 and 12. Oops. Verses 11 and 12. There's no hope apart from God, our, our deliverer. There is no hope apart from God, our, our deliverer. Look at the second part of verse 11. For deliverance by man is in vain. So if God doesn't come, in this time of trouble with Edom, then, then we're hopeless. We cannot have a victory. We fight in vain. And therefore, first part of verse 11, deliverance has to come from God. It says, Oh, give us help against the adversary. God against our enemy, you have to come because if we go on our own, we fight in vain. Not only must deliverance come from God, not only is the only place that deliverance comes is from God, but notice verse 12, deliverance will come from God. Through God, we shall or will do valiantly, and it is He who will tread down our adversaries. So, the only place that deliverance comes is from God. We can't do this on our own, God, the end of verse 11. And not only is it the only place, but, but it will actually happen. We are confident, God, that when deliverance comes, it will be you. And, and you're going to be triumphant. Notice that word valiantly in the first line of verse 12. God's going to work powerfully to bring about safety and deliverance for His people. So, when God is far away, we must rely on Him in faith-filled prayer. The reality of life as a believer is that there will be times when God seems far away. And perhaps like here, we don't know exactly why. 
Perhaps it's because we've turned away from God. God's trying to get our attention. Or it could be because God has rejected us in His anger. We've done something to spurn Him. And while we we don't desire these times of hardship, we don't like to have the feeling of being like a staggered drunk, we don't like the staggering feeling of, of drinking the wine of God's trials, we do need to recognize that sometimes the best plow to break up our obstinate hearts is hardship. Sometimes the sun-baked soil of our hearts are so hardened to the things of God that the only thing that will break it up is, is the trial that comes our way. It just breaks us. It softens us. And where we have to turn to the only place that we can turn, which is to God. And so again, we don't desire these things. We don't wish these upon anybody. We don't wish them upon ourselves. But sometimes it's the best way for us to, to have our hardened hearts broken up. Again, in this situation, we don't know what the situation was. We don't know why it happened, and, and that's often the way it will be for us. So we can't say that every time we get a trial, it's always because we have a hardened heart. Because sometimes God, frankly, just sends trials our way to show us the value of our faith or to show others the value of our faith, like He did with Job. There wasn't any specific sin that He was drawing out to Job. He was actually showing Job's righteousness in the midst of hardship. But here's, here's one of the first places that we should go in our minds when hardship comes. God, is there anything that I need to learn from it? Is there anything that, that I have sinned against You? In any way that I've sinned against You? So, when God seems far away, we need to plead with Him to draw near like we saw in verses 1-5 through five, and then remember His Word, verses 6-8, through eight, and then rely on Him through prayer. Turn over to James chapter 4 because I think this idea of turning to God when He seems far away is also commanded to us as Christians on this side of the cross. James calls us to do, and maybe this is where your mind went, you know, when we are, when God is far away, what do we do? James 4, notice verse 7. Submit therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. And then notice this phrase here, this command in verse 8. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep and let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourself in the presence of the Lord and He will exalt you. Verse 6 says that God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. So when God is far away, here's the question for us tonight. Will we be willing to humble ourselves before God? Will we be able? Will, will we, we be willing to acknowledge any sin that we have committed that has turned God away from us? Will, will we be willing to draw near unto God instead of taking our our trouble and our frustration and our complaint and and just letting it build up inside of us or take it to someone else? 
Instead of taking it to God and saying, God, I turn to you for help. Will we remember His promises? Will we plead to Him for help? Sometimes the best plow for the sun-packed soil of our obstinate heart is hardship. Second principle, uh, and you can turn back to Psalm 60. The certainty of God's nearness is not based on what we do or say. The certainty, the guarantee of God's nearness is not based on what we do or what we say, but it's based on what God has said. Isn't that interesting? That in verses 6-8, through eight, David doesn't say, now that God seems far away, here's how we can know that He's near. Let's look back to what we have done. Let's look at, at what we've done for God. No, it is, God owns this land. God's made this promise to us. He can distribute it as He pleases. And He owns the enemy land too. Anytime He wants, He can put it all under subjection to His feet. We are His covenant people. So what David's doing is saying, when we're in times uh, where it feels like God is far away, the answer is not to turn within. Say, what do I need to look at about what I've done and what, uh, and, and what, what kind of commitments I've made? But what kind of commitments has God made? And this is why we need to remember His Word. What has God promised to me? What does God have the power to do? What, what have I seen Him do in the Scriptures? So turn to His Word and, and be reminded of His faithfulness. Listen to Charles Spurgeon on this. He says, Faith is never happier than when it can fall back upon the promise of God. Certainty of God's nearness is based on what God has said. How can we know that God is near in times of trouble? How can it, we know that God is near when it feels like He's far away? And the answer is that He promises that He is near to His people. He promises that He will never leave us nor forsake us. He promises us that He will take us all the way until the end. That what He begins in us, He will finish. He will complete in us. Philippians 1, verse 6. And then number three, our burdens are too heavy to carry without God. Okay, so the, each of these principles go in line with the main three points. The first one is that we need to just acknowledge any sin that we might have. Just take our anxieties to God. Second is, we need to recognize that, that it's about God's Word that's most important. God's nearness is based on His Word. And then thirdly, um, we need to just take these burdens to God. We can't carry them alone. I must tell Jesus all of my trials. I cannot bear my burdens alone. So, like verse 11, like what David does here as an example to us, we ask God for help. Oh God, give us help against the adversary. For deliverance by man is in vain. If I, if I do this without you, God, it is in vain. I need your help. When God is far away, we take our concerns to Him in prayer. We talk to Him about our complaints. And then we remember His Word. And we rely on Him in faith-filled prayer. Any questions?